Thanks, brother. It's, it's a rare occasion that I find a, a podium that's higher than I am. Um, hey, I just want to say this before I pray and we dive into God's word this morning. I, I have loved your pastor from the day I met him. And from the day I met Tim Kimberly, he has talked about names here in this place, like family names and prayers that he has prayed for people to love Jesus and people to be brought from darkness to light and people to be freed from addiction and to have the soil of this place grow new gospel fruit in it. These are the things I've heard your pastor pray since the day I met him. And I've loved you guys before I ever met y'all just because I know your names. And it's not often that we get to see prayers. We, we, we tend to think that prayers are just things we say into the air, and maybe they fall on God's ears, or maybe they fall to the ground. But the scriptures actually tell us that God stores up all the prayers of the saints, that no prayer you ever pray or no tear you ever shed is wasted. God keeps them, and he's not a hoarder. It's a, it's a glorious thing. But, but I'm actually seeing prayers answered here. I've seen them answered this weekend, like to, to see prayers walking around is a, is a pretty amazing thing. A, a guy that invested a ton in my life when I just became a Christian, and he used to say to me all the time, there's only two things you can do that last forever. You can have babies and you can share Jesus with people. Those are the only two things you can do that last forever. And I'm actually seeing the fruit of that um, in y'all's myths. And I just wanted to say, um, it's a beautiful thing. I know sometimes you get caught up in the chaos of your own life and things are busy and stuff is hectic and you, you miss the beauty of what's happening in your own house. So if I can be um, someone who loves you guys from the outside, just saying, man, it is, it is amazing what God's doing among you. And I just want to pray for more. Can we pray for that now? So Father, I ask that you would come and do just that. Would you come and do more? Would you open up your word to us? Would you speak to us? God, the last thing my brothers and sisters need is a man from Oklahoma to come yell at them. They, they actually need you to speak. I need you to speak. So would you open your word, which is perfect and eternal and without any error and given as a gift to us? Would you open up your word and would you share with us your heart? Because you, because you can and because we need you to. So I, I ask you to do things, God, that no human could do, and uh, give us the courage and the faith to see you at work, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you this morning from God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which if you have a Bible and you want to open it up, I'd love to go there with you. I feel like I'm hot in here. I, I mean, I'm, I'm loud anyway. Um, I feel louder than normal, which my wife would say I'm, I'm always that loud. But uh, 1 Corinthians 13, if you want to go there with me, and I want to share with you from God's word this morning something that I pray will encourage you to press on into places that you're already striving, that you're already, by God's grace, asking, hey, God, would you do these things in our body? And I have prayed for you guys that through his word this morning, God would strengthen, deepen, reinforce his good work that's already at play here. And I've prayed that he would like buoy, bolster, elevate his work among you. And that he would 
protect you from the outside for anything in our flesh that would harm his work here. And those of you that are with us this morning that aren't followers of Jesus, and I don't know many of you, so I have no idea where you're coming from or where you're at. But, but those of you in here this morning that aren't followers of Jesus, what's fun about what we get to see in God's word this morning is this is the heart of what Sacred Mission Church is all about. If you, want, if you want to get at the heart of what Sacred Mission Church is all about, 1 Corinthians 13 is an amazing place to do it. And if you want to know what the heart of God himself is, we see it in 1 Corinthians 13. Because God isn't laying out for us some poem, okay? It's not like, like 1 Corinthians 13 exists so we would have had something to have read at our wedding. And I don't say that to mock anybody. I had it read at my wedding. I, I, I love the power and the potency of these words. But God's actually telling us something about himself. This is about God. This is about God. So I, I, I want to get into our word this morning with a jarring statement. Like, man, this is a weird way to enter a passage about love, but it's a really important way to enter into a passage about love. So I want to say it to you like this. You can be, it's possible, it's possible for you to be passionate about the word of God and miss the ways of God and live your life opposed to the will of God. Let me say that again, because it is jarring and should be so. You can be passionate about the word of God and operate outside the ways of God and in doing so live your life in such a way where it tears down or opposes the will of God. You, you can be passionate about the works of God. As a church, you can be committed to the works of God and miss the ways of God and in do so actually stand against or tear down the very thing you're for. It is possible. And, and I'm getting this logic from verses 1 to 3 of 1 Corinthians 13. Look at, look at it with me. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, can you imagine that kind of generosity? If I deliver my body up to be burned, if I so sacrifice my life, Paul says, even as to lose it, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says, without love, at best, I'm a distraction. At, at best, I'm gaining nothing. And at worst, I am nothing. It is possible, brothers and sisters, to be zealous, to be zealous for the word of God and miss out on the ways of God and actually stand in opposition to the will of God. Now, where do I get this language, ways of God? It's actually Paul's words in the previous verse, right before chapter 13 begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says in 
verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 12. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. 1 Corinthians 13 is Paul talking to us about the ways of God. We think so often about the word of God or the work of God or the will of God, but Paul wants us to understand that there's something fundamental and important about the way of God. And he wants us to understand that if we're zealous for the things of God, but miss out on the heart of God, we actually miss out on who God is and what God's doing. Now think about the context of what Paul's saying in chapter 13. He's speaking to a church about how they pursue and practice spiritual gifts in the body. These people were zealous for the works of God. These people were zealous for the revelation and the power manifest of God. These people were zealous for lives to be changed. I think it's funny if you've been around the church for a minute, we take pot shots at the Corinthians all the time because they were sort of wilding out all the time. But but if you zoom out and get above the tree line, the Corinthians were zealous for the work of God. The Corinthians were zealous for the will of God. The problem is they were missing out on the way of God. And in doing so, their zeal minus the way of God was tearing down the very thing they desired to build up. Think about that. Think about how lovelessness destroys or impedes the very thing we're trying to build up. What I want to share with you this morning, just by way of exhortation and encouragement, I want us just to walk through verses 4 to 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I want to exhort you, as my brothers and sisters, to hold fast to, to be captivated by, and by God's grace, to walk in this most excellent way, God's way, the way of love. Because think about this. You can be committed, committed to the word of God and the works of God. Paul says if you miss out on his way, you're distracting, gaining nothing. You are nothing. So what is love? Look with me at verses four to seven of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says love is patient and kind. And I just want to like pause in each one of these, not not to give you a sermon on each word or not to give you a word study on each word, but the poetry of this passage is so familiar to us. What we need oftentimes is for God's word to become strange to us once again or unfamiliar to us once again. So when Paul says that love is patient, he means it's long-suffering. And patience isn't passive. Patience requires a tough, aggressive power of your soul. Patience waits for God to accomplish his purposes versus demanding that I accomplish God's purposes now. Paul says the ways of God are patient. Patience is not the acceptance of evil. Patience is not saying this is okay. Patience can 
grieve and lament and protest and intercede even while naming the evil around it. Paul says love is kind. There's an amazing book written by a man named Lewis Smedes about 1 Corinthians 13. It's called Love Within Limits. And I think Smead needs to help us here because we miss what kindness is way too often. Listen to what Lewis Smead says. He says, kindness is love's readiness to enhance the life of another person. But it's more than that. It's the power to move close to another person in order to heal them. So it's critical that we understand kindness in terms of moving towards someone for their good. And I say that because kindness is not niceness. I feel like something that plagues the Christian church and masks all manner of sin and things that displease a loving God is, well, let's just be nice. Let's just be nice. But nice pretends to be kind, but instead of actually moving towards someone for their healing, it moves away from them for our own self-protection. Just be nice. Can we just be nice people? But sometimes... Surgeon is moved by kindness to cut something with a scalpel. Or a parent is moved by kindness to discipline a child. I, I, I love, I mean, I, I grew up in the Midwest and I love like the Midwestern modesty, Midwestern politeness. But brothers and sisters, love, the way of God, is kind. It's not nice. It's not self-protective so you appear gentle. It's motivated by the desire for the good of another. Love doesn't envy. Do you know what envy is? Envy is the pain I feel when I look at you and you have something that I want. That's what envy is. It could be someone's car, someone's life, someone's family, what, like their job, whatever, and then envy moves instead of to bless someone, to inflict pain upon someone, because I'm going to try to f- make you feel how I feel in looking at you, not having the thing that, like me not having the thing that you have. Paul says, love doesn't do that, because love can delight in the good of another without demanding that I have it myself, or punishing you for having it when I don't. Love doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. You know what boasting is? It's our advertising department. I mean, we're around advertising all the time. You cannot escape it, you can't open your phone. Every app I have now has ads that have weaseled their way inside. Advertising is everywhere. But lest we're foolish and presume advertising just exists outside of us, it exists inside of us as well. And it doesn't even have to be untrue to boast. Boasting is just committed to me like running my ads over the top of yours. Sometimes it's distorted, sometimes it's honest. The thing that's unloving about boasting is it can't delight in the significance of another person. It has to shine the spotlight on me. Boasting is our attempt to put ourselves at the gravitational center of the universe. Paul says, love isn't like that. Love can uphold and work within reality. 
it doesn't demand that we distort reality so that we look better in it. Love isn't arrogant or rude. Arrogance has everything to do with how we look at other people and what we believe that they have to offer us. And if you believe someone doesn't have anything to offer you, you're rude to them. Rudeness is how you treat people that you don't think have anything to offer you. Paul says love isn't like that because love doesn't view relationships transactionally. It's not about what I can get for you or do you have more things that can, you can offer me and if so, then I'll kiss up to you and I'll kick down to this other person. Love appreciates the humanity of another person and can draw near to them just to be with them, whether they have something to offer me or not. Paul says, love doesn't insist on its own way. Can you elbow the person next to you and say, he's talking to you? It's about your spouse, right? That's not about you. What is it about us that wants to declare ourselves to be God, demand that our way be the way, my, my way is Yahweh, and you submit to it? Here's an unbelievable sign of maturity in a person or in a church community. When, when I, can, I can let things roll your way. I don't have to insist on my own way, and I don't have to remind you arrogantly that I'm doing you this big favor by letting things roll your way. Love, Paul says, doesn't have to be like that. Love isn't irritable. I, I'm guessing your families are way more holier and way more sanctified than mine. But in my family, we have three kids, 15, 12, and nine. And what we deal with constantly is irritation. Can I get an amen? Does anyone else feel that way? My kids are like, oh, so irritating. That was so irritating. And, and before I lash out at them, I've got to remember that they learned that from me. They learned that from me being irritated with them. But, but being irritable is demanding that everybody else conform to my way. Being irritable is saying, hey, I'm God here, and everybody should make it their mission to satisfy my desires completely. And, and when they're not satisfied, I will make you pay. That's what irritability is. I, I walked a long season of my life with this man who would always say, the difference between being driven and led is when I'm driven, I believe that I have to meet all my needs. And when I'm led, I trust God can meet all my needs. Driven people are irritable people. Led people, people just say, hey, there is a sovereign, loving infinite God over the entire universe. Isaiah says he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. This God knows everything you need better than you do, better than I do, and he cares for us. And if we have that perspective or worldview, it liberates us by God's grace to walk in his ways and to not be irritable. Love isn't resentful. Isn't it fascinating that as Paul defines what love is, he gives us so many negative components of the definition. It's not resentful. Resentment is the fruit that grows from past irritation. 
If I was irritated with you yesterday, I'm now going to tell myself a story about you today, and then that grows, and resentment functions as this ledger that I keep to justify my unloving treatment of you or the way I withdraw from you as a friend and a person. And hey, resentment destroys families. Resentment destroys churches. Resentment destroys longtime friendships where you thought you were ride or die with these people and now you don't talk with them. Paul says, that's not God's way. Do you understand that you can be zealous for the word of God, zealous for the works of God, and apart from the ways of God, you're savoring past offenses and mistreating people today and calling yourself the righteous one. That's what resentment does. Resentment calls me righteous in my unloving treatment of you because of your failure of me or perceived failure of me sometime in the past. And then lastly, Paul says, love does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Now this gets right at the heart of where the Corinthians were struggling. Because the Corinthians were trying to be so open-minded, in fact, so zealous, so, so zealous for freedom that Jesus supplies were the Corinthians that they were celebrating all kinds of dysfunction in the life of the body. They were celebrating sexual dysfunction, going, man, look how free that person is. They're not even bound by current sexual mores or constraints. They, they were rejoicing at wrongdoing. Paul says, that's not, that's not what love does. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth, which this gets right to the heart of where we are today in this current moment, right? We say things like, well, man, I, I want to have the grounds to share Jesus with that person, so I'm actually going to partner with them in their anti-reality, or I'm not going to invite them to consider that maybe they're calling dark light and light dark, uh, the best definition of truth in the world is a statement is true when it says what is, is, or what is not, is not. These are glasses. That's a true statement. This is a cow is a false statement. And think how many places in our world where people are saying, this is a cow, and we're, we're, we're believing the lie that, well, if I want to be loving, I, I guess I'm going to like pet it and let it moo. Paul, Paul says love doesn't do that. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. And then just look quickly at verse seven. If I got to come spend a month with you, I would preach a sermon on each one of these phrases from verse seven. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love, Proverbs 19, 11, enables us to overlook offenses. How loving a thing it is to come in, I'm not gonna punish you for your failure there. I'm gonna have the strength of shoulders to carry that, which by the way, is costly. Don't presume that love is costly. Just because Paul outlines it so beautifully and so poetically and so gloriously doesn't mean it doesn't require blood, sweat, tears, agony. 
It's a glorious thing, Proverbs says, to overlook an offense. It makes us godlike when we do that. And, and then we see later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, that love covers a multitude of sins, a multitude of sins, not all of them. There are some times when love will move us to expose sin, not cover them. So the scriptures tell us that sometimes love bears with things, and sometimes love uncovers them. And what's required to know the difference is wisdom. Love believes all things. Now think about that for a second. Love believes all things. There's, there's, there's two endpoints on the spectrum of belief, right? Gullibility believes everything, and cynicism believes nothing. Now pause and reflect for a second. Because all of us would put ourselves perfectly in the middle and we would say, well, I'm neither gullible nor cynical. But Paul actually pushes love towards the side of gullibility. And if nothing else, he says, it's the opposite of cynicism. Cynicism says, I will see through everything and believe nothing. Paul says, love believes all things. In order to do that, friends, you have to believe the best. You have to believe the best about people in relationships. Have you ever noticed how quickly we tell ourselves a story about other people? We move from the facts to our interpretation of the facts, and we act like our interpretation of the facts were the facts themselves. That person cuts you off on that road. They're a fool. They don't care about anyone's life. Or maybe they're rushing a loved one to the hospital. But you, you just jump toward a person's an idiot. Maybe they're scared. Maybe they're in danger. Love believes the best about people even when situations and opportunities give you the chance to believe the worst. I had a friend several years ago say to me, yeah, yeah, I get, I get 1 Corinthians. I believe the best about people until I experience the worst about them. I said, well, that's, that's absurd. That's absurd. You don't need to believe the best about people when you're experiencing the best about people. You need to believe the best about people precisely at the point where you're like, whoa, why did he do that? And that's the place where Paul says, love refuses to put yourself in the place of judge, jury, and executioner and tell a bad story about that person. It believes the best about that person. And even when they fail you or prove to be the worst, it believes the best about God that God is doing things in that person's life that you don't understand and cannot see. That God's telling a bigger story about that person than you presently can acknowledge. Turn quickly to, your, to, to Romans chapter four in your Bible just because I want to show you something that makes me laugh. Can't help but laugh here. Romans chapter four, verses 13 and following through the end of the chapter, Paul talks about the faith of Abraham. You know much about Abraham. His failure as a man, his failure as a husband, his failure to trust God. I mean, we, we know some parts about the story of Abraham, right? Look at verse 20 in, in, in Romans chapter four. <laughs> Paul says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he was promised. No, no unbelief made him waver. Really? Really like Hagar What wasn't wavering? 
there, there weren't other elements of wavering. I, I remember the guy that first, like, that I first heard preach regularly when I came to faith. He said to me, in my house, we call that wavering. Like all these things Abraham did in my house, we call that wavering. But what God is telling us in Romans chapter four is he's telling such a bigger story with the life of Abraham that he's looking at the broad arc of Abraham's life, not the small details, and he's telling us something bigger about him. So love requires that I believe that God's doing that in places I could never fathom or see. Love hopes all things, even when the facts show otherwise. Love hopes. And hope isn't a thinly veiled thing like, I hope my plane arrives in Oklahoma City on time tonight. That's not a a hope. Hope is present confidence that I live out of things that I know will certainly come to pass, even though it seems that they're not now. Love endures all things. Love endures everything. So when you believe the best about people and still experience the worst about them, when you bear up under the weight of the pain of relational conflict or the failure of somebody else, when all that happens, Paul says love endures all things. And I think it's important to note because love doesn't eradicate bad stuff from our life. Love doesn't mean evil goes away. And the fact that you commit by God's grace to walk in the ways of love does not free you from the pains of evil, of rejection, of wickedness, of conflict. And just think about the evils that love endures. Some of them are just acts of nature. Love endures tornadoes and hail damage, which I think you guys just recently had a fun bout of. And, and love endures like the, the pains of insurance settlement in the midst of that. But love endures more than that. It endures realities of the fall, like tumors. My wife and I sat and had dinner with friends this week that this man's body is riddled with cancer. And I can look at him in the eyes and talk about what I hope for and how I will live in light of my hope and how love can empower him to endure now. Some evils have moral agents responsible for them, right? There's some of us that bear in our bodies the evils of other people. Love endures even that. Lewis Smead says that love is not a magic power that turns bad things into good things. Love doesn't send us on a hallucinogenic trip that makes horrid things look beautiful. Love endures. That's what love does. Here's how I want want us to close today. Paul, Paul says in verse eight of chapter 13, love never ends. Think about this. The way of God will never end. And and, and Paul's told us in chapter 7, verse 31 of 1 Corinthians, that the present form of this world is passing away. Which what we need to grasp is that God is laboring right now through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to remove everything that hinders love from our world. Paul Paul is telling us that God is laboring right now through the resurrected Jesus Christ to remove everything that hinders love in you and in me. The, The way of love will last forever, and that means that lovelessness will be eradicated 
fully and finally at the triumphant return of Jesus Christ. And I just prayed for you guys specifically and thought about this. I just want to give you this as a gift. If love lasts forever and therefore lovelessness will not, it means that all that is restless, anxious, nervous, agitated, fretful, edgy, jumpy, jittery, worked up, will be removed eternally from our midst if love is patient. If love is kind, God will remove everything that's cruel, fierce, vicious, brutal. If love doesn't envy, God is right now removing all that is jealous, resentful, spiteful, begrudging. If love doesn't boast, God is right now and forever will permanently remove all that is self-congratulatory, all that's braggadocious, all that's big talking. God will remove everything that's arrogant from us, everything that's abrupt and nasty and harsh and brusque and ungracious. If love never ends and lovelessness will be removed, that which is rude is being done away with now. It will be done away with forever, and it is being done away with now in Jesus Christ. If love lasts forever, it means that that which is rigid and inflexible and uncompromising and stiff is presently passing away. God is presently, through the resurrected Messiah Jesus, removing the lovelessness of rigidity from his church and from the world. If love isn't irritable, it means that everything that is bad-tempered, touchy, crotchety, testy, prickly, is being now removed from the people of God and will be forever removed in the kingdom of heaven. If love is not resentful, it means every grudge, Every bitterness, every offense that we are currently holding will be eradicated because love never ends. And if love doesn't rejoice with wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth, it means everything that is evil and corrupt and tainted will be and is now being removed because God is removing lovelessness from his church, and from the world. And I'm so adamant about this because I have seen lovelessness destroy individuals' lives who were zealous for the word of God and the work of God. I've seen lovelessness destroy churches that were zealous for the word of God and the work of God. And when I think about you guys, I, I'm inclined to pray, oh God, would you increase love in their midst? And would you eradicate lovelessness? Because it's not just that I've seen other people tear down or obstruct the work of God by their refusal to submit to the way of God. I have obstructed the work of God and the word of God because of my own lovelessness. I felt the pain of my own lovelessness. And I long to see it eradicated from the church. And the most glorious thing of all is love is personal. 
John tells us in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. And we wouldn't know anything about the ways of God if God himself hasn't stepped into our world. Because the gospel of Jesus tells us that God, who is love, stepped into our world and bore the effects of lovelessness and lived a perfectly loving life so that all of us who are by nature loveless, by nature and by choice loveless, all of us could be redeemed. We, we could be freed from the debts that our lovelessness has incurred, and we could be transformed into the image of the one who is love forever. So before I pray and we move to communion, I just want to ask you three questions to close. Where do you need to encounter the love of God? I'm not, I'm not talking about just the word of God or some abstract concept of the will of God. Where do you need to encounter the love of God personally? Do you have the courage this morning just to name that before the Lord and say, God, I, I need to encounter your love here. Where do you need to be freed from the destructive consequences of lovelessness? Maybe that's the destructive consequences of someone else's lovelessness or your own. Where are there places today where you need the Spirit of God to deliver you from the consequences of lovelessness? And lastly, what's one element? You could just think of one element of lovelessness in your life. You want to give to God to repent of, to take on the ways of love. What's one element of lovelessness today that you could give over to God? Pray together. Father, I, I, I just ask that you would remove everything that hinders love from this room. There's a song I used to sing in a prayer meeting early in my days of following Jesus. Bridegroom, king, and judge, remove what hinders love. I just ask that you would do that for my friends today. Would you do it for me, God? Would you let us encounter your love? Would you heal us from the consequences of lovelessness? And would you let us walk in repentance for lovelessness now? Father, don't, don't let us be distracting to your work, disruptive to your work. Don't, don't let us labor for your word and for your works, but miss your ways. Would you let us hear the truth that Jesus is our only hope? Like our hope is not to try harder. Our hope is to hear the word that love came to town. Love bore the weight of our sins. Love died for us. Love rose again from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death, the forces of lovelessness forever. And love offers us his body and his blood now. So minister to us now as we move to communion together, I ask in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.
Christy's going to help me if I mess up the logistics of this, aren't you? I, I, I love that we get to celebrate communion together. This is the meal that Jesus gave us to say together that our hope doesn't rest in our own devices. Our hope rests in Jesus alone. There's nothing we can bring to the table except our own need. And so this is our celebration of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for us today. We already sang about his blood being applied to us. That was his loving, perfect blood shed for our lovelessness and all its effects. If you're here with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you could just think of that simply as like, what's the ground you're standing on? Are you, are you resting on your own works, your own righteousness, your own ability to make yourself more loving? Or are you willing to say, I, I'm not what God requires and cannot by any machinations of my own ever be what God requires. I need God to supply for me what God requires of me. If you say that, you're a Christian. And I invite you to celebrate this meal with us. If you're not, like, take a step towards God this morning, but don't eat this meal with us. In fact, the Bible says it's not, it's not magic. It's not gonna give you anything special. It would be distracting if you don't eat it in faith. 